0: Good morning everybody. Let's pray together. Father, we simply say amen to the words that were just sung and we pray indeed that your spirit would be working among us in ways that are better than we could ever imagine. We pray that he will come and through the reading and study and preaching of the word, convict and guide and comfort and teach and point us to the Lord Jesus. We are trusting you for these things because we need you and we confess our need and dependence upon you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to start this morning by taking us back to the 70s. A rough decade, maybe for some of you, but uh, the year was 1977, and in 1977, uh, a young entrepreneur met an evangelist, an evangelist named Ruth Carter Stapleton, who happened to be the sister of then-president Jimmy Carter. So, Ruth Carter Stapleton and this young entrepreneur had a few meetings, they had a few conversations, and after a short while the young, ambitious entrepreneur, boldly declared that he had become born again. The man's name was Larry Flint. If you're unfamiliar with that name, uh, Larry Flint is the engine behind rather unsavory publications like Hustler Magazine and others. And unfortunately, not a lot changed for Larry Flint after he... Made this declaration that he got born again. He continued to publish his magazines, and sadly, after about a year, Flint recanted and has since declared himself an atheist. Now, the point of that is not really to interrogate the authenticity of Flint's profession as much as it is to highlight a phrase, a phrase that is very often used in conjunction with Christians and Christianity, and a phrase that is very often misunderstood. The phrase that I'm talking about, of course, is born again. I wonder what you might think about, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the phrase born again Christian? Better yet, I wonder what your friends and neighbors think when they hear the phrase born again Christian. Right? Are, the, are the born again Christians the Christians that are kind of the, the left wing nut jobs of Christianity? You know, the, the, the mindless, dogmatic, oppressive, bigoted, patriarchal, homophobic fundamentalists who stand on street corners and angrily kind of preach sermons at you? Or maybe you go the other way and say, no, I. I actually think born again Christians are kind of an enhanced version of regular Christians, you know, kind of a a separate category, those who have achieved and attained true spiritual enlightenment. Maybe that's what a born again Christian is. Wherever you fall, there's certainly no lack of opinion or even confusion about what it means to be born again. So, what does it actually mean? Why does it even matter? Does the Bible really have anything to say about this at all, and does it really make any difference to our lives, the way that we think and and view the world? It's with those questions that I would invite you to grab your Bibles and meet with me together in John's Gospel, John chapter 3. We continue this morning in our series in John's Gospel And today we come to John chapter 3 If you happen to forget your Bible this morning Or you ran out of the house in a fury Chasing kids or dogs or maybe your spouse You're welcome to grab uh, the pew Bible right in front of you Turn over to John chapter 3 And I will read from verses 1 all the way through to the end of verse 15 Let's read and hear God's word together Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word. And we have before us today a pretty familiar passage of the Bible. And yet, if we're honest, there are parts of this exchange that that at least don't at first glance seem overly straightforward. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, I'd like to unpack this passage together and, and break it down into three primary sections. We'll look this morning at the necessity of the new birth, the tension of the new birth, and the possibility of the new birth. We'll try to follow the natural flow of the conversation and look at the necessity, the tension, and then the possibility of the new birth. First, let's take the necessity of the new birth. Is this, is this new birth that Jesus speaks about really necessary, or is it more like kind of a premium upgrade to regular Christianity, like getting 20-inch rims on, on your new car? Or is it essential in some way? Well, we catch the answer pretty clearly, don't we, from Jesus' emphatic words. We see first in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or maybe born from above, some of your translations might say, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus doubles down this claim in verse 5 and later that no one can enter the kingdom unless they experience this new birth. Catch the full weight of what's happening here, the full weight of what Jesus is saying. It's important for us to set the scene. So imagine it with me. It's a dark, windy night, and we have this man called Nicodemus, described in verse 1 as a Pharisee and as a ruler of the Jews. This means that Nicodemus was a big boy, he was a high roller, educated, affluent, wealthy, powerful, religious. We know that uh, later in verse 10, Jesus actually calls him the teacher of Israel. This strongly implies a title or a designation. This means that Nicodemus was the most influential theologian and teacher in the land. The senior professor of divinity. A pastor's pastor. The right reverend. A true religious beast of a man. So, Pastor Nick comes to Jesus. Sorry. I won't do that again. Some of you are going to be eating lunch later, and that's going to register. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, who at this time is just kind of a young, itinerant preacher, but who has clearly at this point caught the eye of the religious elite, the establishment. Notice the the plural, the use of we in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Nicodemus has come on behalf of the religious establishment, and essentially what he's doing is kind of sizing up Jesus. He's respectful, but his words are just dripping, dripping with pretension. Uh, Excuse me, Rabbi. Several of my colleagues and I have been observing your ministry. And we see the signs that you're performing. And you know what? We think, we think that you might just have what it takes. And So Jesus' response is pretty astounding here. And at first blush, it almost seems like he's dodging the issue. He says, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Now, what does that have to do with anything? But Jesus is not sidestepping the issue. And to really catch what he's up to, we actually got to take a step back and look to the end of chapter 2. If you've been around uh, Old North for the last number of weeks, you'll recognize that Jesus has recently turned water into wine at a wedding, He has cleansed the temple. But then at the end of chapter 2, John, the author of this gospel, gives us a super important narrator's comment. You might check it out in verse 23. John tells us that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. That should sound familiar. But Then in verse 24, something interesting happens. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And that's all he says. That begs a huge question, doesn't it? What was in man? What was it that gave Jesus so much pause? And the answer is an answer that John has peppered throughout the early chapters of his gospel. The answer is darkness. Darkness. Back in chapter 1 and verse 5, John writes that the light, Jesus, shines in the darkness. That's a metaphor for Jesus, the light coming into a dark world. John chapter 3, we'll hear this next week, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness because their works were evil. Darkness. And we surely cannot look past the little detail that John gives us in verse 2 of this passage. Did you catch that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus by night? Why point that out? Now, well, the most obvious reason is because it was night. Some others have said that maybe Nicodemus was a little bit embarrassed to be seen with Jesus, but I'm not so sure about that. Nicodemus was not a man who needed to make a lot of apologies. I think what John is doing here is what he does throughout his gospel. He is leveraging beautifully Metaphor and wordplay. And he is showing us, he is pointing out that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus as the representative par excellence of those who have seen the signs and yet, and yet, are living in total darkness. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, we see, my colleagues and I, we see something about you. And Jesus says in the cleverest of ways, O Nicodemus, you don't see a blessed thing. You see these signs, but, but what I am bringing about here is something far more than the signs of the kingdom of God. I'm actually bringing the kingdom itself. I'm inaugurating this kind of saving rule of God among his people, and you will never see it unless you're born again. My oldest son, Topher, ran into our kitchen a couple of months ago, and as he approached, we noticed that he had like a golf ball-sized egg on his head. It was already turning color and nasty looking, and so we're like, T, what <laughs> What happened? What in the world did you do? And he proceeded to tell us that he had been playing a game in our basement with his friends and a couple neighbors and his siblings, where he was chasing them around the basement, But he was doing so with a dark sheet covering his entire head. (laughs) And, of course, he uh, ran into the steel support beam in the basement. Uh, Fortunately, he was okay, but he experienced a decent degree of pain because he couldn't see. And this this is pretty much what our spiritual life is like without the new birth. We can't see rightly. We can't experience all the glory and salvation of God's reign and kingdom. In other words, to be a Christian is to be born again. And to be born again is to be a Christian. This is not a category of super-Christians. This new birth is necessary for every person who desires to follow the Lord Jesus. You know, I also wonder, as we think about the implications of the first part of this conversation, how we, too, often approach and come to Jesus thinking that we've got him all figured out. Good morning, Lord. I've observed a few things about you. I wonder how often we go throughout the day putting Jesus in kind of this tidy little box that suits our pretenses. It's so, so important as we think about this part of the conversation That we must approach Jesus not not so much as we think Him to be, but as He is, as He presents Himself to be. To approach Jesus not with pretense or with the idea of how we might incorporate Him into our agenda to achieve our goals, but how He might incorporate us us into His. So the new birth is necessary, but we haven't really explored what this new birth actually is yet. So it's important that we do that. What is this new birth? And and answering that question, we will delve into the tension of the new birth. The closer we look at this thing, the more tension that we are going to feel. Let's go there together. Verse 4, Nicodemus now returns fire with some questions of his own. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, he's emphasizing the point here. I say, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, before we look too harshly at Nicodemus, we've got to remember that this is not some dull twit that Jesus is dealing with. He is the senior professor of divinity, the pastor's pastor, a bishop's bishop. This man knew a thing or two about the coming future kingdom, In fact, he was probably teaching young rabbis just like Jesus. And he knew that that every law-keeping Jew would, in the last day, be welcomed into that kingdom. So Jesus' additional requirement of the new birth, this would have challenged Nicodemus' entire paradigm, his entire worldview. There's tension there. We get even more tension as we think a little bit more carefully about the character and the credentials of this man. Remember, he was a devout, educated, affluent, powerful man. He's the guy you want your kids to grow up and to be like. Maybe Jesus hadn't read his resume. Maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe he, maybe he didn't click on his LinkedIn profile and, and look long enough to think about who he was actually dealing with. But he did know who he was dealing with. So when Jesus doubles down on this requirement of new birth, he's basically saying this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus he's basically saying Nicodemus nothing that you have done to this point in your life counts for anything before God his credentials were not enough and neither are ours so if you've come this morning thinking that you might impress God with your credentials you have come in vain because here's why Because this new birth that Jesus is demanding, this new birth he's talking about, isn't some easy religious box that we can just check off. You know, we can kind of come and go through the motions and look like a Christian and do the things that Christians do and fool a lot of people, including ourselves sometimes. But this new birth is way beyond that. Jesus is not talking about turning over a new leaf here or behavior modification. Because Jesus knows that eventually willpower and good intentions putter out. Here Jesus is saying that we don't need new laws. We need new life. He's not just saying that we need kind of a little makeover, but that we need remade entirely. I think of the story of Augustine of Hippo, who over thousands and thousands of years has become arguably the most, one of the most, if not the most theological influences, greatest theological influences in the history of the church, Augustine of Hippo. But he didn't start out that way. He lived way back in the 4th century, just a couple hundred years after Jesus had lived. And Augustine essentially spent the first part of his life as a rigorous academic and a sex addict, basically, was what defined his life. In fact, some uh, say that it was was told that Augustine, even as he was just kicking the tires of Christianity, would, would say things like, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And eventually, though, he did become a Christian. Augustine did become a Christian. And it's said that after his conversion, he visited a town where he ran into a woman with whom he had a, a pretty charged, explicit relationship with. So they had a brief conversation, exchanged pleasantries, but the woman noticed something peculiar about Augustine. He was, he was a totally different guy. He was polite and, and kind, and he was gentle, so they finished up their conversation. And as they started to walk away, the woman thought to herself, you know what, maybe, maybe he mistook me for somebody else. Maybe he, he doesn't remember who he was talking to. And so she, she chased after him and she shouted, Augustine, Augustine, it, it is I. Augustine turned slowly, looked her in the eyes, and said, I know, but it is not I. This is the type of transformation that Jesus is talking about. And I wonder if if you've ever wondered what it would be like to have a fresh start. To really wipe the slate clean. You ever wonder what it would be like to travel back in time, maybe 10 or 15 years, and tell that version of yourself what this version of yourself now knows about life and truth? Maybe you would redo that conversation with a loved one. Maybe you'd say it a little differently. Maybe you'd avoid a certain place or time that you know would eventually bring you grief and and pain and sorrow. Oh, to, to have the ability to wipe the slate clean. But we can't do that. We can't press the restart button because that button doesn't exist there are no time machines that we can jump in and go redo some of these things and yet, and yet this is the kind of transformation and change that Jesus is actually demanding with the new birth do you feel the tension around that? like Nicodemus we might wonder incredulously but Jesus, wait wait a minute how can a person start all over? listen Turning over a new leaf is one thing. Making better choices is another thing. But new birth, Jesus? New, new life? That's asking too much. That's unfathomable. And it's with this tension that we have nothing else to do but fall desperately into the words of Jesus and move into the final section of this text and explore Not the necessity of the new birth or the tension of the new birth, but the possibility of the new birth. How can this happen? There are no reset buttons. There are no time machines. How can this happen? Well, we get the first clue from Jesus' words back in verse 5 where he He skillfully and quite intentionally tweaks the description of the new birth from born again to born of water and spirit. I wonder if you pick that up through the first reading. Now some take this as a reference to two births. Water representing our physical birth and spirit representing our spiritual birth. And and I don't think that's a gross misunderstanding of the text, but I actually think Jesus is doing something else here. I think what he's doing is making parallel statements. In other words... You can't see the kingdom unless you're born again, verse 3. And then verse 5, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born of water and spirit. And I think he does this on purpose, and here's why. Because while the language of being born again would have been a little unusual to Nicodemus, the language of being born in water and spirit should not have been. This is why Jesus critiques him later in verse 10 when he says, Listen, are you not the teacher of Israel, the senior professor of divinity, and yet you don't understand these things? Jesus expected him to understand. Nicodemus was well educated. He had likely much of the Old Testament memorized. And therein lies the key. Because the language of water and spirit is Old Testament language taken from places like Ezekiel 36. Listen to this, and it's on the screen behind me if you'd like to read along, follow along. Ezekiel 36, thus says the Lord God, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes you see what's happening here in Ezekiel 36 and John chapter 3 is something that scholars and pastors have come to call the doctrine of regeneration regeneration, the complete transformation and remaking of the entire person John Calvin says, by the term born again or regeneration, Jesus means not just the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. B.B. Warfield beautifully defines regeneration as a radical and complete transformation wrought in the soul. The very core is changed. And, And this work of regeneration, this new birth, is a work that only... God can do. Think of the language of of Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle. I will give. I will put. I will cause. This is God speaking. Friends, we cannot make ourselves born again. Some of us need to stop walking around talking about, I got born again the other day. You know, like I had a thought, and it just came to me. And I made the ascension to spiritual enlightenment. The truth is that we don't get ourselves born again any more than we got ourselves born the first time. This is God's work, his sovereign work. This is what Jesus is talking about when he mentions the wind or the spirit, the breath in John chapter 3. You might imagine on this dark evening that the wind was blowing. Perhaps a a tree branch moved close to Jesus and Nicodemus. And he points to that and he tells Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. The wind, the spirit of God, the dynamic agent of this new birth, moves as he wills. And while we can't always explain the dynamics behind why the wind does what it does, because the wind cannot be manipulated or coerced, the effects of the wind, the results of the new birth, are undeniably powerful and good and glorious. Listen to this good news. The message of Christianity is not, go clean up your life. The message of Christianity is that God himself will cleanse you. The message of Christianity is not conjure up a personal moral revolution. The message of Christianity is that God will come and transform you from the inside out. I pray and hope that we see how good this is. I mean, think of the resources that come with this kind of new life. A new mind. Not just neurons we're talking about here. We're talking about a new way of thinking and approaching all of life. New desires. We have a a shrinking satisfaction for sin, the things that bring harm and shame and separation and relational tension. And instead, God gives us a growing appetite for himself and for his ways. A new family composed of other remade creatures strange as we are at times to encourage you along the way how about how about a new identity and security something that's not rooted in the ever-changing affection of other people or the unpredictability of self-confidence but something that is rooted in the unchanging character and word of God think about the new power that comes by being remade being given A new power to actually obey and to follow Jesus. Not one that is self-generated or based upon my mood, but one that comes from being regenerated. I just love how Tim Keller expresses the new birth as an implantation of God's future power in your life now. Incredible but there's actually more to it. There's more glory to the how of the new birth because in the final words of Jesus, we actually have the mechanism, the mechanism by which all of this is made possible. In fact, we might sum up this entire passage in this way. The new birth we need is made possible by the Savior we trust. The new birth that we need and we even crave is only made possible Because of the Savior, the Savior that we trust. And it really all comes together in the final part of our passage. We pick it up in verse 9. Nicodemus is asking the question we've been asking. How is this possible? How can these things be? Jesus comes back with that critique. Are you the teacher of Israel yet you don't understand? He says, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know. How clever is that? notice how Jesus picks up on the we language that Nicodemus was using earlier? In other words, he's saying to Nicodemus, you think that you and your crew know a few things? Well, we know a few things too. I could tell you a few things, Nicodemus, about the kingdom of God. I could tell you a few things about God because I have come from God. I am God himself. The word of God come, the logos, the revelation of all of God's character. And the new birth is not possible unless God reveals himself to us. And Jesus has said, I am the one who has come. And then in verse 14, look at this again. Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's a bit of a head-scratcher at first, right? Is Jesus, is he going off track here? Is he going down a little rabbit trail? The answer is no. Jesus is still talking about the new birth, but what he's doing is, is he's showing Nicodemus and us how this is going to happen, how this new birth is made possible. He is showing that the new birth that you need and that I need is only made possible by the Savior that we look to and trust. And he does so, curiously, by referencing a story from the book of Numbers. Numbers 21, we won't read the whole account, but in summary, it's a very brief story, a little peculiar. In summary, we have the people of God just delivered from slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. God delivers them miraculously. They are now set free, but grumbling bitterly against the Lord. The miserable food that he's given them to eat, the... The less than stellar care that he's shown for them. They're grumbling and complaining. And so God sends judgment by way of deadly serpents. The people are bitten or infected, and they begin to die. This is bad, bad news. So the people turn back to Moses and they say, We messed up. They, they grieve their sin. Please go petition the Lord on our behalf. Moses does this, and God provides him a pretty unusual solution. He tells Moses to, to make a serpent, to set it on a pole. And then he said, to everybody who's bitten, who looks to the serpent, they'll be healed and saved. The people do, they're healed and saved. That's it. But the meaning is pretty straightforward. The sin of the people had literally poisoned them to death. And their only hope, their only hope was to look in faith to the peculiar solution that God provided. And so Jesus says, in this reference, it is with every human person. Living in darkness, infected by the deadly poison of sin, and hopeless, hopeless, dead in our sins and transgressions, unless God once again provides a remedy, even one of a peculiar nature. And He has done that. This is what Jesus is saying. God has provided another remedy, only not by lifting up a serpent on a pole, but by lifting up His Son, by lifting Him up on a different kind of pole. On a cross and on the cross Jesus Christ provides life to those who simply and desperately look to him in faith don't you see this is the heart of the gospel we bring the death God brings the life the new birth that we need really is made possible by the Savior that we must trust God does a work in us that only he can do. And we look, it's two sides of the same coin. We look then in faith to the solution that he's provided. Maybe we think of it this way. We parents are always eager to show people pictures of our kids. These are mine. Uh, You can see a couple of newborn pictures. The top one there is Emma, who's now 13. Topher, who's now 11. And then Omari at the Canfield Fair with something on his face, who we just adopted uh, just a couple of weeks ago, officially. I love showing pictures of my kids, and I love showing pictures of my newborn children and my new children. But you know the one picture that, that rarely ends up on your Facebook wall is this one. This is a picture, used with permission, I might add, of my wife just before delivering Emma before giving birth and I will save you the details but let's just say that pregnancy was really really hard on my wife really hard both kids were born premature there was a lot of pain a lot of suffering involved along the way some of you I'm sure can identify with that if you are blessed to have children by a different means whether that's through foster or adoption you can also attest to the fact that bringing a child into your family is no easy business it's hard It's filled with pain and emotional distress and uncertainty and sometimes worse. I wonder if you realize this morning that your spiritual birth is only made possible because of the suffering and agony and anguish and death of the Lord Jesus. He suffered all the pain of labor, the anguish that makes the new birth possible. He dies and we live It's remarkable. The new birth we need is supplied by the Savior that we trust. And if you're here this morning and you're already a Christian, I hope the thought here, the thought of the Son of Man lifted up, exalted, to use John's language, on a cross, just reinvigorates your gratitude to to God. I hope it just reinvigorates your desire to joyfully obey and to follow him. I hope it reminds you of the deep pool of resources that God has given you, not by just asking you to be a better person, not by tweaking little imperfections of your character, but by totally remaking you. And so to you, I would say, don't just talk about your new birth, live it. The evidence of this new life should be seen by the people around us, our friends and colleagues and neighbors, not in some obnoxious, self-promoting, look-at-me kind of way, but But by living in step with the Spirit, by bearing the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 tells us, joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're born from above, our life should look like it. And to the person who hasn't yet put their faith in Jesus, I wonder if you might look again this morning. I wonder if you might look to the cross... And perhaps perhaps see Jesus with new eyes today, eyes that have been enlightened, eyes that have been remade because the new birth that we all need is only made possible by this great Savior that we trust together. With that, let's pray. Father, we begin with a confession, a confession that there are times when we don't think deeply enough about the intricacies of the new birth. Forgive us for our pride in thinking that you are so fortunate to have us, Lord, humble us And help us to remember that apart from you, the life giver, we continue in death and darkness. Lord, forgive us for some of the preconceptions that we have made of your son. Forgive us for approaching him or for living our lives in such a way that try to conform him to what our preconception is rather than than seeing him and savoring him and enjoying him and worshiping him for who he is. Forgive us for failing to draw from the deep pool of resources that you've given us, those that you have made anew, those that you have given the gift of faith and repentance to turn and look to Jesus and to see him for who he is. Forgive us for not not going to that deep well of resources and leveraging them faithfully. We pray that you will help us to even now look to the cross and to find life. We pray in Jesus' name.